everyone. I'm your host, Liana Pavane, founder of TTYL, human connection advocate, certified life coach, and most importantly, a human that's just trying to figure it out. I'm your unapologetic 20-something native New Yorker, advocating selfships. Yes, I'm in a relationship with myself while navigating the dating world. I'm on a mission to break down dating stigmas in our society and to stop ghosting. I started this podcast after my ex broke up with me over the phone. I know, at least it wasn't a post-it. And I realized that our dating etiquette was severely lacking due to technology. Each week, I invite guests onto the podcast from all walks of life to discuss their first date horror stories and best dates. Because let's be honest, we don't focus on the positives enough when it comes to dating. The best part about this podcast is that after each episode, I've walked away feeling more confident about myself and my relationships. So whether or not you're single, in a relationship, or find yourself in a situationship, I welcome you to get comfy as I dive into the uncomfy so we can normalize it together. Do you want to feel magical every day? Now you can. When you adorn yourself with glitter from Unicorn Snot, you too can shine bright like a diamond. Add sparkle to your next night out, your first date, or just for yourself while you work from home because self-ships use code Liana15UnicornSnot for 15% off their face and body products or their new Bio Glitter Sunscreen with 30 SPF so that you can literally shimmer in the sunshine. That's code Liana15UnicornSnot at unicornsnot.com. Welcome back to another episode of Ghost of Dates Past. I am super excited about today's episode. I'm here with Sam. We just connected really recently through a mutual friend. So I'm excited to dive into some really interesting conversation about love and money. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. So you do want to introduce yourself a little bit more to everyone listening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm Samantha Pillsbury, or basically everybody calls me Sam. I'm a dating and self-worth coach. Uh, So I work with ambitious millennials who are looking to either find or build real, honest, vulnerable relationships. And a lot of my work ends up because of that goal, um, touching on women's sense of worthiness around love, career, and money. I'm also a co-coach and facilitator with I Think I Like You, which is a coaching practice also focused on conscious dating. Before this, I worked in marketing and business development. When we're not talking about work stuff, I'm like a personal finance nerd. I'm a big solo traveler, a reader. I'm trying to be a wine nerd, but that's very much a work in progress. Yeah. So I'm super excited to be here. I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. Amazing. Yeah, likewise. So before we dive into all the exciting informational stuff. Let's hear your first date horror story. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Unfortunately for me, this one's really easy because I have a first date that just lives in my brain in infamy. So I guess this was a while ago now, but I guess the the big facts that everybody needs to know before uh, we get into this story is that my dad is a PE coach turned athletic director. So I grew up around sports like side of a football field, side of a basketball court, golf course, like it was a big part of my childhood. Um, And then you've already heard some other facts about me that will become relevant in this story, like loving travel and wine and being a nerd about personal finance. Okay. So I just remember trying to schedule this date being difficult. You know how like some conversations on dating apps are like stilted and then 
it just like never, it wasn't happening. So at one point I just like took control. I was like, okay, how about this sports bar at this time on this date? And we just made the plan. It was my bad because when we walked up to the sports bar, I remembered that it was a Thursday in September and there was a football game on. And so like, you can't have a first date in a crowded sports bar with a football game on. So we pivoted and went down the street and I just went, by the time he walked in and we sat down, I, I remember it was a really bad first sign when he was like, oh, I walked by that original bar that you suggested. Like, what do you think is going on? I'm like, it's a Thursday in September. It's a Thursday night NFL game. And he was like, oh, football. And I'm like, oh, my God, if we don't know the analogy for the NFL, we are already off to a terrible start here. And then, you know, the menu comes and we place an order. I'm like, I ordered a Pinot Noir, which is a very, in my opinion, unoffensive drink order. It's not like I sat down and ordered a Jaeger. And he was like, oh, you like wine? I'm like, yeah, I like wine. And he goes, oh, I had it for the first time last year. I just don't think I like it. I'm like, "Mm, okay, two strikes. So I'm like, all right, let me ask him about his job. Maybe the job will be what gets us going. And his answer was something to the effect of like, oh, yeah, it's fine. It's like, I don't have to work that hard and it like pays decently well. And I'm like, "Mm, okay, like we live in New York City, lots of ambitious people around and we're already at this level of dissociation with like any ambition whatsoever. And then the kicker for me was I was like, okay, well, clearly work isn't working food. And I was like, let's talk about travel. Everybody loves travel. Has some trip they're excited about. I'm like, so do you have any good trips on the horizon? I had just gotten back from a trip in Paris. I thought this was going to be a great topic to at least get us to the end of this date that was clearly not going to result in a second. And he goes, yeah, I mean, I've never been west of the Mississippi or east of Bermuda. And I don't think I really care to. Excuse me, sir. Like those are very specific geographic things. Like you looked at a map to come up with that answer. And you're saying that you have no interest in going to, I don't know, California. And I just remember, like, I started pretending to get text messages from my boss and, like, extricated myself from the situation. And then, like, 30 minutes after we said goodbye, I get a text message from him. Turns out his roommate was a former coworker of mine. And I was just like, universe, I'm out. I This is, like, take me out of this situation. So, yeah, that one, I, I don't think I'll ever beat that on the terrible first dates. That is pretty terrible. I also like how you weaved in what your likes are, and it really did. It played in the story perfectly. So that is wild. I can't believe. Also, just like people who aren't interested in exploring the world are so strange to me. It's like, um, why would you not want to go somewhere incredibly amazing across the world and experience a different culture and eat food like eat actual authentic Italian food that's not from just a restaurant. I just don't understand. Yeah, truly baffling to me. So we we were never going to work for the begin with. It's fine. Like left that one in the past. So did you just cordially end the day like it lasted however long it lasted? You had the drink and then you left? Yeah, I I remember having my phone start to light up. I think I might have like covertly texted a friend and be like, can you start blowing up my phone just so that I could like put it on the table and it would keep vibrating. But I remember telling him that it was my boss, which is what I think eventually led to discovering that there was this coworker connection because he then asked like, oh, is your boss difficult or something? And like this coworker wasn't just a, like we worked at the same company. Like we used to work on the same team. He was no longer at the company anymore, but like this guy must have gone home and been like, oh, I just went on this date. Like, I don't know that it went well. She works at blah, blah, blah. And I knew this guy. We used to sit directly across from each other. We weren't 
particularly friendly at the end. He's actually incredibly accomplished now. He's built an amazing company and I have so much respect for him, but he, I'm still blocked on Twitter, which happened after this date, the coworker, not the guy. I'd never follow the guy on Twitter. Um, so this date like really had intricacies. I'm like, I really didn't have anything against the coworker as related to the date, but maybe he was pissed that I like, you know, extricated myself from a first date with his roommate. I don't know, whatever. Jesus. Wow. That is wild. Insane. So <laughs> let's dive into some of the Q&A. So the first question that I had, you know, when we talked on the phone, you had a lot of great insight into the intersection between finances and love, which I think is a really, really unique topic. I think one that is often not explored, especially in couple relationships, at least not for a while. So I kind of want to get into like all the different areas and explore that with you. So this intersection can definitely be a sticky conversation in general. So before we, you know, get into it, why is it such a sticky conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think our culture as a whole is not comfortable talking about money um, and, and women in particular. And that's not my belief. That's like a studied phenomenon. There was there was a research study done by one of the banks. I don't remember which one, um, but like six, something like 61 percent of women would rather talk about their own death than discuss money. I'm like, that's dark. That is like a, a, a serious aversion to talking about money. And it obviously has like significant negative effects on women's financial health. But that's a whole that's a whole nother podcast topic. So I think we are just uncomfortable with the topic as a culture. And so then when you take it down to the individual, we're definitely not as used to talking about it, which makes it harder to talk about it. And that makes things more complicated. But it's kind of funny to me. I think the irony is really thick that like when we we discuss the intersection between love and money, like marriage which for most people, I don't want to assume for everybody listening, but for most people, finding a lifetime partner who you will probably marry is kind of the end goal. And like marriage historically was always an economic arrangement. And the idea of like your person being a like for any Bridgerton fans out there, like a love match is like a fairly new concept. And yet today we are very uncomfortable with considering the economic arrangement part of finding your person, which like to be clear, and I know we'll probably get into this, I don't think it's a first date discussion, but I think they're inextricable. Our views on money and our views on love and also a decision with a person being about both love and money, like they're intricately connected. I completely agree. I think it's really tough to, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of friends that judge by someone's career, right? Like that is such an interesting conversation. People can base someone else on their job title and what they do. And I think- my personal, I have a, an opinion on this, but I'm curious to hear from you first. Like, why do you think the reasons for that might be? Yeah, I mean, I think we can't assess a human as a potential partner. Like, we can't tell on the first date or even in early dating, like, let's call it when you're in whatever, like the talking stage. Like, you can't tell how they're going to be for their entire life accurately. So we're all relying on these sort of like, in my in my coaching practice, I call it proxies, where you like pick something that you believe is the accurate projection of just like, you know, we've decided as a culture that SATs are an accurate proxy of like how smart you are and whether or not you should get in college. Although I, we're kind of trending away from that now. But, you know, our culture uses these proxies. And so 
a career, like what somebody does for work, we're using as a proxy for a lot of things. I don't think there's something necessarily wrong with using proxies, but we just should always be questioning whether they're accurate in what they're assessing. So to me, looking at somebody for their career, I don't think what somebody's doing today is necessarily an accurate proxy of how much they're going to earn over their lifetime. And I don't think most of us are consciously being like, oh, he's not going to be wealthy enough to take me on the trips that I want to go, but maybe somewhere in the back of our minds. But I do think somebody's career is a good proxy for their values. And I think that part's really useful. So like for me, my personal life, I know that quality time is really important to me in all of my relationships. Um, And I can, you know, go back to my childhood and unpack all the reasons why that is. But I just know that quality time is important to me. And it got tested for me in a previous relationship because I was dating a guy who was the CEO of a company that was leading up to a massive moment in the company. And in my head, I was like, oh, CEO, he runs the company. He's in control. He can manage his own schedule. He can say yes or no to calls when he needed to. But like at the end of the day, he couldn't. He was like responsible for the company's growth. And I totally respected that about him. But I could, I was looking at the CEO to mean one thing. And it also meant a whole set of other things that I hadn't really considered that were also important to how I felt in the relationship. So I think we can't, we kind of one note certain careers and we need to look at it with a little bit more nuance about, you know, quality time or are they location flexible? What does their schedule look like? You know, if you date a chef who works from 4 p.m. to 3 a.m. and you're a morning person, like that's not going to work. I mean, maybe it could, but that seems very extreme to me. Um, and so we had to like unpack these at a little more of a detailed level for it to be a useful conversation. Totally. That's funny you said that. We were just, I was out with my friends the other night and we were talking about, oh, have you ever dated a chef? And like, that would be really hard. And it probably only happens for people that are on similar schedules, like bartenders or a server or, you know, someone who just like works in the nightlife space because that's their schedule's opposite than a lot of people. And I think that I completely like I'm the same way. Quality time is super important to me. And I think so much, so many of us, you know, even going back to your story, I think it's so important to, to see in your partner, the people you're dating, that there is a path and that they want a path for themselves, that they have that ambition within them that says, okay, I'm not where I want to be right now, but I have dreams. I have aspirations. I have goals. And you see that person working towards them. If they, you know, I think a lot of people can say, oh, I want this, that, and the other thing for my life and for my career. And I want to make X amount of money, but they don't do anything. You know, the big dreamers, the talkers. And there are a lot of people like that out there. And I think those people, they they date someone, they find someone, and then this person is just kind of waiting for their partner's life to begin and slowly realizing that it's never going to happen. So I think it's just, and it's tough because you're not going to know that dating someone for a month or two, it's going to take time to realize your partner's way of going about their career and talking about everything. But I think it's super important to, like you said, kind of figure out what your values are and what you're looking for. Because at the end of the day, someone who makes over six figures you think is important, but then you meet someone who's just super ambitious and 
you know, has side projects or wants to go somewhere with their lives or like values traveling a lot. And you also value traveling a lot and you just kind of make it work. You know, you don't need to take that first class ticket to go to France. You can use that money, save that money to go to the best restaurant when you get there or stay in a really nice hotel and have that more experience. You know, I think weighing the pros and cons of what kind of person do you want to be with and what does that person value? Yeah, totally. And I think that hits on a really key distinction, which is, you know, we all know, and if you read any personal finance book in the world, they say, yes, the easiest way to increase your wealth is to increase your earnings. But when you want to look at somebody's values, looking at not the top line, not how much is coming in, but where things are going out and how much is going out. Like you could have a $100,000 earner who's spending 80,000 of those things. And that might be a signal to one human that they love enjoying the better things in life or they want to like really live life to the fullest. And to another human that might be like irresponsible spender, not for me, not how I want to like live my partnership. And so I, I try really hard. I obviously have my own personal beliefs about how money should be spent and earning all those things. But I try really hard not to project those onto the world because for every individual people, person, you may have different money beliefs and it's just important to consider the whole picture of how much are they making? How much do they plan to make? How much are they spending now? Are they maybe not spending that much now? Are they maybe not taking you out to nice restaurants? But what's really going on underneath, which as you said, will take some time to figure out, is that they're saving really aggressively because they dream of starting a company. And you're like, oh, okay, that would be an interesting indicator. So yeah, I think as a whole, we really try to oversimplify down how to sort of evaluate people. And I just think we do all of ourselves a disservice by oversimplifying into too many of these like, oh, well, he's a lawyer. So we would have a glamorous life together and he'd make a lot of money. And yeah, he'd work a lot, but our life would be, I mean, you maybe, but you don't know that necessarily until you actually sit down with the person across the table from them and understand how they think about the world. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's so important to figure out what the person values, what you value, and see if that from there there's a match. Because I think at the end of the day, like also relying on that person, relying on your partner solely for monetary comfort, I think that's something that happens in a lot of, that still happens in a lot of heterosexual relationships specifically. Because I think the role of, the wife and the woman in the relationship has stereotypically and is changing now, but has stereotypically for a long time been this idea of the caretaker, you know, once they're married and then they have the kids, they're the ones really taking care of the kid. They're the ones providing, they're the ones, you know, at least like keeping house kind of scenario, like that very 1950s esque vibe. And the husband's job is really this protector, provider in terms of monetary and, you know, just overall kind of keeping like keeping the cash flow going and like being that overall like kind of behind the scenes person that's not as involved day to day in the house. And I think that's changing a lot. And that comes into an interesting dynamic of you know, what do these modern relationships look like and why it's so important to 
really think about your values before monetary nowadays because your values and and what you do well I guess what I'm trying to say is you're like the woman can be the breadwinner nowadays like it's not necessarily the man anymore yeah absolutely and that can cause for men and women who have not really you know, interrogated their beliefs on gender roles and equality and earning power and all of that. It can cause problems. I don't think it's, again, I don't think it's automatically a problem. Y'all could probably catch a theme with me here. Like I'm all about the nuance and that everything is individual to the person. But if you have not questioned whether, you know, you as a man are going to feel threatened if you're not the provider. And a lot of men could be like, oh, yeah, I'd be fine with it. And then the moment comes and they're like, oh, shit, like, I don't really feel so good about this anymore. And so I think we all have to do our internal work. It is an amazing gift to humanity to raise the next generation in ways that are, you know, to raise feminist boys and feminist women and ambitious people in general that want to change the world and help it more than they, you know, all that, like, that's an amazing thing to spend your life. But are you going to feel good about yourself as a woman if you are not generating income? And some women don't mind and some women, it would really be a struggle for them. And that's on each of us to figure out and then to think about how that plays into a partnership, because there are plenty of happy couples who are both career oriented, working outside of the home and I would imagine, although I'm not in those couples, that they have negotiated the way, whether explicitly they've had conversations about it, I would bet they have. But even if they haven't, they've somehow figured out how they can both have their individual lives. And then their relationship can also respect that, especially for heterosexual relationships, we are not the same. We are not both, like a relationship will not work if we come together as the two same people. And there's like, biological reasons for that like our bodies are wired that if somebody is too close to our genetics it's like problem because it doesn't like evolution doesn't want us mating with our cousins there's a reason for that and so I this is one way in which I think that evolutionary sort of instinct kicks in that the complementary roles of provider protector and like caretaker caregiver makes a nice yin and yang and so if you're two people that are out career oriented when you're out in the world, it's fine. But when you are in the home, how do you navigate that? And maybe it's he does all the housework and you, the woman, are focused on, you know, doesn't have to be in traditional gender roles. But you do need to find your ways to be different because that's where sexual tension comes from. When you're like, oh, I kind of don't know what you're going to do next. Or like, oh, you surprised me. Or wow, like, I really miss you because we've been away from each other for so long. Like we need that difference from our partner to feel that literal tension. Like there's a reason why I think we describe it as sexual tension. And so that's up to each individual couple to figure out how can you maintain that tension? Because like tension isn't a bad thing, especially in a sexual relationship. But if you have two sort of alpha career oriented who then come home and are both alpha career oriented, you know, driving the bus nobody ever sits back and it's just like yep I appreciate you giving that to me whatever it is um and I'm not an expert on like feminine masculine energies um although I think it's a completely interesting field that's gotten much more like very popular on TikTok right now but yeah I think that 
to sum up, I think that finding the tension in your romantic relationship is important. I really like that. I think that's such a key, like you're almost cracking the code because I think, you know, you talk about keeping the flame alive in relationships and we've had this conversation on the podcast a few times and I think no one has really stated it in that way as it's really about keeping the sexual tension alive. It's really about making sure that your partnership is balanced and that you are supporting each other, but also doing your own thing. And it's interesting. I mean, even having space apart, like I'm watching Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've seen that show, but there's this couple that gets together towards like end of season one and Keely and Roy and they, he ends up coming to work with her and they're now they're both working in the same office and he's, he's like following her around. Oh, should we get coffee? You know, oh, can I come to your office and hang out? She starts to like unravel and go absolutely insane. And it's this really funny scene where she's watching this episode of Sex in the City where Carrie's blowing up at um, the, what's his name? The guy before Big, like the other long-term relationship that wasn't oh, Big. Aiden. Yeah, Aiden. And she's like blowing up at him like, your stuff is everywhere and blah, blah, blah. And he, she's like seeing her boyfriend in front of her on the couch, like reading and like distracting her from me time. And she's just like, I can't take it anymore. You know, you're in my space all the time. Like, I just want solo time and blah, blah, blah. And like he blows up at her, but then realizes like, oh, that makes sense. Like in order to have that balance we need that separation so I think it's just this really yeah it's a really key moment and like something that I think my parents do well uh in addition is having their separate rooms like they have their separate spaces they come together for meals you know sleeping and like and you know obviously any like quality time trips they spend together and things like that but like for the majority of the day even if since the pandemic especially like they've been in the same apartment together they have that separate time. And I think that's so, you know, just as much as you're like managing and doing different things in the house. And like you have your, you also have your two separate universes as well. Totally. Esther Perel, who is like a very well, well-known love and dating expert. And for anybody listening, if you haven't explored her work, she's unreal. So definitely recommend. Yeah, she's amazing. She has this great sort of point, I won't try to paraphrase her, but she's basically like, today we expect our partners to be our lovers, our best friends, our co-parents, our sort of like CEO, co-CEO of the household. Like we are putting so much expectation on one person. And in all of those expectations, it's about togetherness. And it's like, when you think about what's so cool about the, you know, when you've ever gone on like the third or fourth date with somebody where you're like past the early date jitters, but you still know so little about the person and you are letting, you know, you're seeing them sort of blossom in all of their, you know, all the things that are about them that you're maybe unexpected or the passion that they have that you like didn't know about from their profile or whatever the case may be. Like that discovery is so sexy when you're getting to know somebody and if you create a world with your partner that is too enmeshed, like you don't get the opportunity to continue to discover things about them. Even if it's just hearing about what project they're working on at work that you don't know about because they've been away from you for a day or whatever. So yeah, that giving yourself space um, also honors the individual that like you are a woman separate from your role as a girlfriend or a wife. And like you are allowed to have things just for yourself. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important to 
have that, you know, and that's something I talk about a lot is the self-ship concept. And I think it's so important to have that no matter where you are in your relationship and where, you know, if you're just starting to date someone as a way to keep your head under the clouds, so to speak, you know, I think it's keeps you grounded. It keeps you sane. It keeps you connected to yourself, having that time to reflect, not getting so caught up in the, you know, just the, that kind of anxious feeling at bay, I think is really helpful when you, you know, make sure you make time for yourself, make sure you're making time for your friends. I've had like, I have a friend right now who started dating someone in January and I've seen her, I think like once. And I'm just like, girl, that's like, I love her. Like, I think she's a great person, but I'm not like waiting around forever to hang out with her. And it's like every spare moment she spends with her boyfriend. And it's like, cool. Like, I'm glad you're happy. But like, at the end of the day, your friends are forever and relationships come and go. Well, but here is the thing. Friends are forever. Relationships come and go. But also... When you marry somebody, you're like, okay, I'm in. Our friendships have way more opt-in and opt-out power. And I think we often flip that in an interesting way. Like, your friends don't have to stick around. They literally didn't sign a marriage contract that says, like, from here on out, our assets are split or whatever. And that's, like, a whole separate thing. But, like, our friends do require maintenance. And we can't just expect that they're going to be there forever and that we have to give all of our energy for our relationship because it's our most important relationship, whatever. And like, for all the listeners, I was air quoting there. But I think there are, there are lots of, there's lots of reasons why some people, you know, people may do it. Some people get really enormous validation from their romantic partnership. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a problem with that if you like start to feel withdrawals when you're not with your significant other. And like making time for your friends means that you're you're basically like pulling yourself away from your drug. And I don't, you know, I, I don't think most people take it to that extreme, but you can start to notice it in certain people where they are uncomfortable being away from their partner for too long. Maybe it's out of, they want to be with the partner. Maybe it's fear what happens when they're away from the partner. But again, like we gotta, we gotta look at those things. Like anytime you're feeling an uncomfortable feeling about anything, like it's something to look at of what's, what's really going on here. And this is, you know, what I do day in and day out with clients is, you know, most of us don't want to face the uncomfortable thoughts. And in my mind, our best insights are on the other side of that discomfort. Mm, Yeah, so well said. And I want to dive more into that, but I want to get to your first date, your best first date story. Oh, so I wish I could say that this one ever had a chance of being anything serious. It didn't. I I was pretty sure I knew that. So that may have contributed to the magic because it didn't need to be anything other than a great first date. But I spent a summer in Rome uh, in college. I don't remember before what year. Uh, We were, you know, living in an apartment in Trastevere. And Rome is, to this day, one of my favorite cities in the world. And one night we were out. They set up these bars on the banks of the uh, Tiber River called the Lingo Tevere. And we ended up chatting with this group of guys kind of sitting next to us. And to be clear, the group that I was with was mixed gender. It was men and women. It was all of our, we were clearly American. Like you could hear that we were like an American crew. They start chatting. We're like, oh, what do you all do for work? And they're like security. 
We're like, okay, what does that mean? Like, what do you protect? And they're like, oh, they gave some like really weird answer. I just remember that we could tell that they were cagey. And my roommate and I, who were pretty close at the time, were like, they're being cagey about something. We're like, oh, where are you from? They're like, Switzerland. We're like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, these were members of the Swiss Guard that friggin' guarded the Pope. Like, the Vatican Swiss Guard with the ridiculous outfits that they'll, like, if you Google them, you'll die laughing at the outfits that they wear if you've been to St. Peter's recently. Um, it's, like, these yellow and blue striped, like, bouffant pants. It's ridiculous. But one of the guys, one of these Swiss Guardsmen was real cute, and he and I started talking, and we exchanged numbers, and he was like, can I take you out a couple days later? I'm like, Heck yes. And so I had this day, I literally met him like underneath the, it's called the obelisk in St. Peter's Square when he got off of work, he, you know, came out in normal clothes. I'm like, okay, good. Cause I kind of would have been weird walking around with you in the outfit. Um, and you know, he lived in Rome. So he took me to this great wine bar and then blah, blah, blah. And then we had this like romantic picturesque makeout session I'll just say it was real near St. Peter's Square so that like Catholic people don't come after me. It was very PG, but just like we had a lovely moment. And I kind of half expected to see like Tom Hanks running past me going to like save the future of Catholicism. And then we, you know, like said goodbye. I think he was a little bit like, what did I just do with this like American girl made out? Like, what did we just do? And we were friends on Facebook for a long time. Last I checked on him, I'm pretty sure he's married. He's definitely back in Switzerland. You know, he was very, he was very cool. He spoke like four languages, you know, very well-trained military guy. But yeah, it was just, it felt like something out of a movie. So I'll never forget that one. I love it. Oh, I can just transport myself there. I know my friends are always joking. Like every time I come back from traveling, because I went to Australia recently and they're always like, okay, what story do you have? Like you always have, you meet someone, you have this crazy story. Like what's the tea? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, you know, and I, I agree with you. Like there's something about that magic when you know that it's not going anywhere and you can kind of just like open up to someone and just like, what do you have to lose? You're never going to see this person again. They don't know anything about you. Like spill your guts kind of one night, like exchange secrets kind of mentality. But I feel like you're also in this vacation mindset or like this away mindset. So your your guard is down to begin with. You're open to connection. Like you're not you're not like trying to put up barriers or walls to protect yourself because you don't have to. And I think that that's something that I definitely try and ride that line, even in dating, because I've been on dates like first or second dates where I'm like super vocal and like, you know, unearth all and like I'm connecting with people and like I'm open and I'm there. And then I've been on other dates where I'm more reserved. And I think it's just you know, it's dependent on like what's happened in my life recently or where, how, what headspace am I in? But I, you know, it's, I don't think there's any like right way to go about that either. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's just, just about trying to stay as present as you can in every individual scenario. It's definitely easier in some than others though. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of a first day, actually, since we're talking about it, the idea of paying at dinner. I think this is something that comes up so often in uh, conversations about money. And yeah, what are your thoughts? Like who should pay? We're talking heterosexual relationships, obviously, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is another one of those things where like when I hear a hard and fast rule, my flags go up of, okay, hold on. 
why does anybody have a hard and fast rule? I think, you know, I always say anytime you see a simple rule, people are looking for a simple solution. And it's like, if you are, if you're relying on a hard and fast rule, you're kind of farming out your opinion to the rule so that you don't have to engage with the nuance. I like when a guy pays for a first date. I have a feminist reason for that because like hair care and makeup and the pay gap are things. But like more importantly, and I'm halfway joking on that stuff, but not entirely. Uh, On the other hand, like I really do, an important thing for me in a relationship is feeling cared for. And like I said, like first date scenario, like first date evaluation, you want a first date metric. Like This is a way that I can look on a first date. Does he make an effort to make me feel cared for? There may be scenarios in which he made me feel immensely cared for on the date and we end up splitting the bill. Although I find that most men also acknowledge this expectation. So it's another reason why I don't think the rule is hard and fast because you can have somebody who pays for a first date who ends up being a fairly non-caretaking person, but you'll see that over time. And so you need to just like, okay, it's a good sign now. It's not necessarily a bad sign. It's at least, you know, if they don't, but it's a good sign now. And so let's continue to explore that. Cause you know, I can play forward a scenario. I even know people like this in my life of like friends who dated guys who were incredibly chivalrous on the first couple dates. And then they would regularly, the guys, not my friends, the guys would regularly go blackout with their buddies and not answer phone calls for like whole evenings and then feel sorry, send expensive bouquets of flowers and take them out to a nice dinner. I'm like, those were money ways of caring, but I, it's easy to see how in the actual experience of does she feel care for the, the proxy wasn't accurate. So I don't have any problem with it as an expectation on the first date. I tell anybody to caution if you're take if you're attaching too much meaning to it, um, but to really start to watch for the other pieces of them. If caretaking is an important thing for you or making you feel comfortable or whatever it is, whatever it is for you, it's a good way to test. And then you can observe. And like, I don't expect, I definitely don't expect for a guy to pay for every date forever. And in fact, I'd be perfectly comfortable if at some point in our relationship, I was a breadwinner, as long as the feeling cared for didn't come away. So like, I would, maybe my boyfriend comes home and I'm paying the bills right now because he went back to school or something, but he notices that I'm feeling anxious and comes up behind me and like gives me a big hug without me having to ask for it. Like, it's worth a million bucks, not literally, but you know, I, I would happily make that trade because it gets down to the real value and like experience of the relationship that's important to me. Yeah, I really like that. I think it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've definitely, and we talked about this a little bit, like I've, I, with my ex, like he was very uncomfortable having me pay for anything. And it was either like we go and you know I was making more than him and so this was like a constant struggle but I was also like doing my side stuff so you know it was that concept we were talking about earlier of him feeling unsure about his status in the relationship and he again would say out loud oh I'm you know you're so amazing like you're doing all these things like I'm so proud of you like all this stuff but then like he wouldn't actually come and support me or like would just act weird whenever I brought up my projects or my career. And like, that was definitely a major, major red flag that he wasn't comfortable in his skin and he wasn't okay with me 
being that breadwinner, being that like the boss, boss ass bitch, essentially, which is fine because I can find that person and like, that'll be awesome. But yeah, there was this like one time I picked this kind of like nicer place. We were going out to this comedy show and we went to the bathroom and I ended up paying and he got really upset. And then we went to the comedy show. He tried to make it up to me by paying for as many drinks as like how much I spent on him which was just felt like a really petty and like uncomfortable move like no I wanted to treat you because you're my significant other and I value our relationship and like it wasn't like I'm trying to buy his affection or anything and that's I think an interesting thing to think about because like in a heterosexual relationship, especially with a guy who is used to treating the girl, when the girl wants to treat, what does that mean? And how can we switch that narrative to just be like, yeah, I, maybe I saved up for this dinner. Like I wanted to go to this nice restaurant and maybe the guy that I'm dating could, could afford to take me and maybe not. Either way, It's me wanting to go and being like, I really value, like, this is quality time for me, right? Like, check. And like, thank you so much for spending time with me. Like, I just want to, like, show you something, like, give you something special. Like, give us a fun memory. And like, this is on me, babe. Like, don't worry about it. I got it. Like, I just want to treat you and like, show how much I care about you. And it's not coming at a place of like, malice or like oh I make more money than you or like oh of course like no question about it babe like I got the bill you know don't you don't have to lift a finger kind of like there are guys like that and I think there are also guys like my ex that are just like they don't want to say it out loud but they don't feel comfortable going to certain places or like they want to split the bill but we go to like cheap places and it's like you can you it's okay i think at a certain point in a relationship to talk about those things totally yeah i have i have two thoughts on this the first one is that i think it's really important that we all acknowledge that we receive love differently and like love languages are the pop culture way to explain that but like we all experience the act of being loved in different ways like we it's kind of like we have channels And like whichever channel you're on, you'll be able to receive it. And it doesn't matter. Like if you're sitting with a walkie talkie on channel three and he's sending you love down channel one, like you're not, you're not getting it. And, uh, but if he switches his love walkie talkie, whatever to channel three, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I feel so loved. And so we have to acknowledge that in both directions. Like we want our person to love us the way, or give us love or care or support anything the way we want to, but we also acknowledge that they may not be receiving on the same channel. Like it doesn't have to be that you go back and forth on the same channel for a relationship to work. I think this is one of those places where sort of gender roles or socialization or just who they are as humans, like we need to parse through that because, you know, he may not, your ex may not have met, it may, it sounds like there was some gender role element in there, but then there also may have been that like, he does not receive gifts if we're using love language you know terminology maybe that really wasn't how he could receive love and if you had communicated to him that it was a quality time piece that maybe he would have been more receptive to it and you know downplayed the money element whatever but then i think the other piece which actually like kind of nice transition here is that i really really believe men are also the key to women's liberation and like and because 
men are equally trapped in different ways. And they're trapped in a patriarchal culture, which benefits them, but they're still trapped. Like they are still trapped in these beliefs. And I don't know if you or listeners like the Man Enough podcast does an amazing job unpacking this, but like men are expected to be no feelings, strong, always. They can't express weakness. They need to provide and provide all the money. They are living in their own sets of expectations that make it hard for them to exist. And so when we, you know, women's movement have been able to become boss ass bitches, they're sitting here going, okay, wait, but do you need me now? Like you can make your own money. Do you need me? Or any various version of those stories. So I also think it's important that we acknowledge the men in all of our lives can be our partners in this, in acknowledging like we can give them freedom to not be in the roles that they're traditionally expected to in the same way that we can expect them to give us that freedom. And we can both acknowledge the discomfort of, you know, a guy maybe letting a girl pay for dinner. It might be a little uncomfortable for him, just like a girl paying for the first date might be a little uncomfortable for her. We can acknowledge that discomfort and us navigating that together, like, is our path forward. Not saying it's going to be easy, but it's important. Mm, Yeah, I really like that a lot. I think that's a great... A great point that, you know, as much as we can talk about from our female perspective, like what we're going through, there are tons of other things that the men are going through on the other side. And I also think, I think that's interesting too, like even back to your first date story, like a cultural difference as well, because I do think like this is a very Americanized viewpoint of the heterosexual dynamics, especially when it comes to finances and you know, in relationships here, but that could be so different across cultures. And it is so different across cultures. And, you know, men in Europe are taught to actually show their emotions and to be open. And I think that's also why you are able to have these magical nights with people in other cultures, because there is this like, deeper connection, like it's as if, everyone was raised with the understanding that human connection is the utmost important and to like let yourself just say how you feel is a really important communication tactic that I think is deeply not practiced in America. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Groves has this great quote that he says, the two core human needs are self-expression and belonging But if they're ever in conflict, belonging normally wins out. So it's like you can have all the feelings in the world, but if you're faced with a decision, am I going to like belong in my friend group or am I going to express what I really feel? Sometimes you can override if the self-expression is important enough or, you know, I definitely felt this experience in, you know, making the decision to leave my stable corporate benefited job to become a dating coach, which, you know, you can imagine the number of conversations I had where people looked at me like I had three heads. And they're like, you're going to go do what as a career? And I just got to a point where my self-expression was more important. That I was like, there is something pulling me towards this career that I believe the world needs this. And I know how much it benefited me personally when I was a client of dating coaching. And I I think I'll always wonder if I don't express this part of myself, And also, how good of friends are they or family are they if they don't accept who I am authentically expressed? But that's way easier said than done. There are lots of moments where the belonging, you know, 
boys in the locker room sort of situations or anything. You know, you can think of all these moments where people are questioned whether they're going to choose self-expression or belonging. And when we were cavemen, we needed to stick with the pack. Like the instincts are there for a reason, but we're all going to live really sad lives if we don't chase our self-expression, at least partially. Yeah, it's so important. I think following your gut intuition, I'm definitely feeling that in my life right now. Like, And I think this, you know, this goes kind of brings the conversation full circle with, you know, having your own time together and apart from your partner, what makes you happy? And knowing that, and you know, you can drive this home. I'm sure people have seen this all the time on Instagram and social media, but like you make your own happiness and it comes from within. It doesn't come from external things. And I feel like I'm even like coming to terms with that in a lot of different ways in my life and realizing like, oh, all these, you know, the aspiration to be something or to like, like, yes, ambition is important, but like, so is inner peace and in that relation to happiness and how that relates to happiness. And I think that is honestly something that everyone should just aspire for is like, and something that my therapist actually posed to me today was if you take away everything in your life, like you strip down, you don't have your career, you don't have your projects, you don't have your friends, maybe you don't have your apartment, like who are you? And like, what do you care about? And I think when, and you know, going to what you were talking about, when we strip the title away, when we strip all those titles away, you know, oh, I don't, I don't live in Manhattan. I don't live, I don't have this career and this great career path. We don't have, you know, maybe have one friend. Like, who am I at my core? And what is, what do I value? And I think that is really where we should be finding partners from. Yeah. Yeah, no, our, our, especially if you are, and you know, my clients in my coaching business are trend highly towards high achieving, ambitious, you know, the, well, you are a good kid. You probably did well in school. You have probably already gotten at least one promotion or like, you know, jumped job. Like that, that tends to be my clientele. And that person has lived their entire life with the drip of approval from other people. Oh, you got a good score on that test. Good job. Oh, you did so well in your dance recital. Great job. Oh, you've got into the good school. Great job. And your great job. Great job. And then at some point, and it's different for everybody, you hit the point where the people in your life want you to be happy, where your parents are like, yeah, do whatever you want. Like, as long as you're happy or they're saying, you know, like you're off my health insurance plan, girl. So like, you know, you choose whatever career makes sense for you. You pay your bills however you want to. Um, but most of the people in our life eventually want us to be happy. But there's no bell that's like, ding, 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 you're done with getting approval from other people. You now need to approve of yourself. And so a lot of us, I think, sort of slip quietly into this phase and then wake up and go, oh, I've been living my life for the approval of other people. And I'm not sure I want it. And that's a very jarring experience. I mean, I, it's describes the past three years of my life. And, you know, I, it just so happened that it, I think COVID may have maybe pushed it along for me, but I think it has been a really profound exploration and something that I love going through with my clients is how can you come back to Glennon Doyle calls it your knowing, 
like your intuition, your gut, whatever, whatever word you use to describe that. When you come back to you, and I love your question, and it's a question I ask myself, if, if, if society, money, and I don't remember what the third one is, but let's just call it society and money. Like if society and money weren't a factor, would you want to do it? And the number of times that I've looked at a project and been like, I'm thinking about it more because it's good money. And if I take away the money, it's not as interesting to me. Or I know my parents would be proud of me, but if my parents weren't around, would I be passionate about doing that project? No, I wouldn't be. And really coming back to yourself, because when you can find that, that tool is useful when you're on a date with somebody and you're trying to figure out, is my intuition about this person good? Because you'll have tuned the muscle to be like, oh yeah, this feels good to me versus judging based on all these weird proxies and rules that society has told us. Like our most powerful tool is that whatever you call it, knowing intuition. And the more that you can cultivate that muscle as early as you can, the more powerful you'll be at guiding your own unique life, which is what we all want anyway. Mm, Yes. So powerful. Going to end on that note and do some rapid fire because that was awesome mic drop. So (laughs) first question is, how do you get excited for a date? How do I get excited for a date? This is kind of a backwards answer to the question, but one of my cheat codes um, is that for the first three dates, I wear the same three outfits, no matter the dates that I go on. I kind of have a, like a winter and a summer, but I hate like choosing outfits is not, I'm not a fashion girl. I'm not an outfit person. So I have three outfits that I know make me feel good. Um, and so I don't have to do the thinking about the outfits thing. And then you also have to never have to remember, like if you're on a stretch on the dating apps where you're maybe talking to a couple guys at once, you don't have to keep track of what you wore on which date. Cause I just know like, Oh, it's the second date. I wear this outfit with an asterisk, like pay attention ladies. If you're going ice skating or like mini golfing or things where you might be like bending down more often, maybe consider whether your second date outfit is appropriate for that. But like barring that, like that helps me reduce the burden a little bit so that I can focus on, I do like put on a fun playlist while I'm doing my makeup and stuff like that. But yeah, the, the first couple of dates outfits is a helpful one for me. I actually love that. That is so helpful because I feel like sometimes, like, especially if I'm like out somewhere all day, you know, classic New York city and like you want to come home and change and like drop your bag off. But then you're like scrambling and trying on like 10 different things because you just couldn't just, you can't decide what to wear. Like having a go-to that makes life so much easier. So I love that. And what is your ideal date? Ooh, for a first date, I'm more of a drinks than dinner girl. I love a good wine bar date. Like the ones that feel kind of like you're in Italy where it's like cozy lighting and, you know, lots of good like snack items with wine. It really is just more about the conversation for me though. The activity, you know, I've had a lot of different first dates with a lot of different like structures and but good conversation is totally totally and has there been a time where you've been ghosted or ghosted someone and what happened yes I have definitely been ghosted actually not as much as I I think I think probably below average I don't really know why that is um I did have I did call a guy not literally phone call but I did mention I I prompted a guy who I had a hunch was ghosting it was the first time I had ever done that and I was like actually interested in continuing to see him and so I just kind of wanted to know one way or the other 
And I did a thing that was very bold for me at the time and was like, so do you want to get drinks this weekend? And it finally prompted him to send the message of like, oh, all the reasons why, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that was really good closure. It actually felt really good. So now I've started doing it more often. But yeah, I've been ghosted a couple of times. It sucks. It's just like, it sucks when somebody chooses their own comfort over giving you an answer. Um, Because that's one I really, and when I talk to people who are struggling with being ghosted, that's one of the things I say, like, would you have really wanted to be with this person who chose their own comfort over respecting another human being's time? And if you are considering ghosting to anybody listening, it's not that hard. Send a text message. You should handle the momentary discomfort to send the text message or the phone call or have the conversation, whatever it is to give the other person the answer. It is not the kinder thing to do to not tell them. Mm Mm-hmm, 100%, 100%. So where can everyone find you? My website, it's all sampills.co everywhere. So the website, sampills.co, Instagram and TikTok, sampills.co. And then if you're interested in I Think I Like You, which is the other coaching practice, that is I Think I Like You.co is the website. Yeah, this has been so fun. Yeah, super fun. Thank you so much for your time and we will chat soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode or this podcast in general, I would greatly appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, and review below. And if you can think of anyone who would enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing it. As a new podcast, the most helpful thing is to grow by word of mouth. After all, who doesn't enjoy a good date story? Lastly, if you would like to connect with me, please follow me on Instagram at ghosts underscore of dates past. And feel free to shoot me a DM if you have a comment, question, or would like to be a guest. I'm always looking for new people to bring on to the show. Hope you all have lovely weeks and I'll be back next week for another juicy episode. Bye for now. Bye.